Welcome to the Whiskey Congress. Honest, open talk dedicated to speaking the truth to those who are open to hearing it. Black, white, right, left. Most importantly, honest, bold, and fueled by good whiskey. In Whiskey Veritas, we are Whiskey Congress. Join the evolution. Whiskey Congress is back in session. Stephen and I are in the Cleveland studio, and we are joined by a repeat guest, a guy that I always love talking to. We call him Market Ben, but Ben, um, you're much more than that. So much for having me and uh, do, doing well, man. Yeah, it's been a while and a lot's happened since we spoke last, which I think was the end of 2021. So it sounds all right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it should be a lot of fun, man. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Steve, Steve reached out to you, and I'm glad glad you did because we haven't again we haven't talked in a while and issues, but we haven't talked about the economic issues as much as we maybe should. And every anytime we're talking markets, you're the guy we want to go to. So first of all, if you want to put any of your you know social media stuff out there, um, so people can follow you, let it roll. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean. Uh... I, I think a lot of our audience might overlap, right? Because we, we tend yep. to interact a bit on True. Twitter. But yeah, King of Convexity, uh, at King of Convexity on Twitter. Um, and, and that's where people can generally follow some of my amusings. <laughs> I post a lot of charts. Uh, it's some kind of boring finance stuff. But uh, uh, Nothing turns the chicks on more than charts. I don't know what it is. I get really excited about the charts. I just, so. yeah, it, it hasn't gotten me very far with, with, with the ladies. Well, we know you're doing fine with the ladies, man. We've met you. <laughs> yes, I appreciate that, Jim. Uh, so, uh, bef you know, before we get too deep into the markets, I did want to just talk kind of where we are with this situation with Russia, Ukraine. Um, you know, I, and, you know, for our audience or new people who are listening, uh, for whatever reason, um, I, I have no idea what Putin is thinking. And, and I've said multiple times on the show that I don't want to try to get inside his head, right, for obvious reasons. The dude is a complete maniac, and I think that's that's proving out to be. But, um, you know, the Ukrainians, I think, scored a victory this week. They were able to sink, um, you know, one of Russia's main warships. Uh, Russia is denying that the, that the Ukrainians actually struck it, and they're saying that it just sank <laughs> right. because it caught fire. So they're just saying, no, 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 we didn't, you know, we didn't let them hit us. We're just completely incompetent and blew up one of our own ships is essentially what <laughs> is they're that, saying. Is, is that better? <laughs> right. Like, I'm just like, guys, I don't know if this really works out for you the way, it think, the way you think it does. I mean, and if they were any other country, I would think that maybe that's just what happened, but it's Russia, so they're obviously lying. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Ukraine, the Ukrainians hit them, and that's a big victory for them. But the reality is, um, you know, Russia's going to continue to just throw bodies at this. Right. Right. Um, and my concern is, I mean, the, I mean, the fact that the Ukrainians have held up this long um, is pretty remarkable. And I think that they can continue to do this. They may be able to do this for another year uh, or maybe longer, but the reality is at that point, once this is dragged on for like what is left of Ukraine, right? I mean, and 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 I think another big concern of mine, right, is you know Ukraine is a massive country. They're a large exporter of a number of goods that I don't think that people really think about um, when they think about you know who's exporting what and what its overall impact is to like global markets. Um, but like this disruption, 
um, you know, when people think supply chain disruption, they think of China, sure. right? But I mean, I think that this is this is this is starting to have a major disruption, especially as it relates to our food supply. Um, and I worry what the overall impact of that will be, not just from a money standpoint, but like, you know, food, like in and of itself and access to it, especially in some of these places like Africa um, and the Middle East that, you know, rely on, you know, importing wheat, a lot of... Wheat being the biggest, yes, right? right. Um, but that's that's just kind of sort of where we are. Um, there, there was a brief sort of uh, conversation about chemical weapons being used. Um, I don't... I wouldn't put it past Putin and the people in his military to use chemical weapons, but it doesn't. It, what it sounds like is that they saw something that may have looked like it, but it could be something completely different. Like maybe, you know, a, 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 something exploded right that was already on the ground and caused like chemical burns or something like that, as opposed to actual chemical weapons being used. Um, but it does beg the question. If Russia were to get really desperate and start to get even uglier than they have been, which the only like the, the the next two levels are yes, chemical weapons and then nuclear weapons, but the conversation is if Russia escalates, right, with their level of depravity, and they bring in something like chemical weapons, then what do we do, right? Because you know the use of chemical weapons in Kuwait was really like the big driver that got the U.S. involved in that situation, right? Like we were probably going to get involved anyway. I don't want to go but, down the road, but yeah. But I mean, like you know, the use of chemical weapons was the thing that was you, put you out mean there. Kuwait or Syria? No, 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 Kuwait. Okay, right. I mean, Syria as well, but I mean, Syria was a shit show. I mean, right. just across and, the board. And we know, and we know that the Russians used chemical weapons in Syria. Um, well, we it can be strongly assumed. So my question is. If the Russians do something just so horrible and they use sarin gas or, or white phosphorus or something like that in Ukraine, do we stay on the sideline? Ben, ben I, I, I hate to have you on as a guest and not give you a chance to speak, so I'll give you the floor or I will uh, take it myself, but I've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Jim. I'll just kind of tee it off with saying that that listen I, I think if you go back and and look at the disposition of putin since the very beginning this is the end of february when it's february 24th in fact i think it was when he the initial yeah. uh invasion uh in into ukraine I, I will tell you i was on the wrong side of that i actually thought that it was a lot of posturing um i didn't think that he would actually move forward with it because i couldn't actuary it out in my mind from a game theory lens why this made sense for him. Yeah. And so it goes to your point, Steve. Um, now that it's happened, what are the off-ramps? And, and I don't see any meaningful off-ramps. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I'm concerned about this becoming a, a protracted war. And to the question very directly, if chemical weapons, or in, in this case, I've also heard about tactical nuclear weapons, basically like small-scale nuclear weapons, if those are to be deployed, uh, th this is NATO involvement directly without any uh, equivocation and that is essentially world war three that's tremendously disruptive as you guys can imagine that's probably the understatement of the of the century um that's going to create a lot of problems not just from a supply chain and, and food shortage standpoint but we're starting to talk uh, on a very systemic global uh you know type of scale so uh so that's my sense if there's chemical weapons or nuclear weapons tactical in this case not intercontinental, uh, you Ballistics. know, ballistic nuclear. Right. 
but uh, but yeah, I think that's NATO involvement without any question, and that's um, that's going to be extremely disruptive. And so I, I'm kind of in the same mindset as you, but I'm thinking uh, about more of a. At what point do you just say we're there? This feels to me like uh, I think that's the. I think if chemical weapons get used, we're there. Because but what does we're there mean? Does it mean that means it, full out, I, made, I, I think if go? we're saying we're there, then that mean I think that means that you've got boots on the ground, right? Or or you you're, you're you know you're offering air support or something along what, those once lines. You put, once you once you are putting U.S. planes in Ukrainian or Russian airspace, yeah. we're at war. Period. Yeah. Nope. And yes. The, the reason the reason that I was tap dancing a bit was I am not a, a war hawk by any means. Um, but I'm also, I think we're at a point where we're, we're playing games. To me, this feels like a, a junior high playground where we're all like seeing who can step over the line. Oh, if you come here, this is going to happen. If we're it, in the adult world, it feels like we are in junior high seeing who will flinch first, who will throw the first punch and what happens after that. And at some point, it, I'm not necessarily pointing at Biden, but he's the man in charge right now. Like you need to know what's your what's your line in the sand. Obama put the line in the sand in Syria, and then basically backed away from it. Um, and I'm not necessarily upset about that because what that would have led to, who knows. But at some point, we're gonna have to say, we're there. This is a conflict that involves the Ru- Russia, China, and the U.S. And China seems to be happy to sit in the background and say, y'all fuck each other up, and we'll figure it out. Um, but I think we're at a very dangerous tipping point, well, and I wonder how different this felt in 1939. China is welcoming the distraction because they're, I, I think that we're yeah, not they're far. they're on lockdown with COVID. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're on lockdown with COVID, and I think from a military standpoint, their next move is Taiwan, right? Sure. Like, so they, they want as much shit to go on over here so that they could, that can leave them to go ahead and backdoor and take over Taiwan, which creates a whole Which they wanted for right. 70 years or whatever, 50 years. Um, no, my, my one thing where I think I, I guess... I disagree with you both a little bit is that I don't know if there's anybody in NATO who really has the spine for what's what their involvement um, would mean. And, and I think because of that, I think there'd be a hell of a lot of hesitation, right? No matter how bad it gets. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I don't necessarily trust like, I think fundamentally what you're saying, Ben, is correct, right? That once chemical weapons are used, then it, sh- on a, it should be unequivocally NATO involvement. It absolutely should be. And I think that you, when you read the bylaws and what, has, what puts NATO together, I think that that's pretty clear. But I think with the leaders that we have in place, I don't know if anyone actually has the spine or cojones or ovaries or whatever you want to call them, depending on who's who, um, to actually I appreciate pull, your political correctness, Steve. to pull the trigger and, and do, because I, I'm the, I, I'm the guy who doesn't, I, I, I hate to see people getting bullied, right? Whether it's in the gym or whether it was in school or on the street or what have you. And that's not just on small scale. It's actually, it's, it's on law, uh, you know, on the bigger picture as well. And right now you've got, a bully in Russia, and the the underdog is fighting back and continuing to punch the bully in the face. Um, but the bully is a lot bigger and can take a lot more punishment and can dole out a lot more punishment. And at some point, 
the smaller guy is going to lose that fight. Um, and so me personally, I would have already engaged in this and said, we'll figure it out later. Um, obviously, everyone else has been much more conservative, probably the right move. But at some point, how much longer are we going to watch these people get fucking massacred? Like, that's the part where, like, I mean, just sitting there and seeing all those dead bodies, week in and week out, just piling up, knowing that these Russian soldiers are raping these women until, basically, to the verge of death or to the point where they can't have kids anymore, and we are just sitting back and watching it. And I get that World War III is, is a whole lot of shit that we don't want to get into. Right. But at the same time, I, I, I'm... I'm I'm at that point where we're gonna have to fucking deal with it because one like we still have a mess on our hands, right? Like everything is like everything is very volatile and disrupted anyway. It's not going to get better even if we stay out of it and this continues to drag out. None of that shit gets better, right? Like we don't we don't resolve the energy thing. We don't resolve uh, uh, the lack of the, the shit that we're losing that's not coming out of Ukraine. Like so, shit's not going to get better. It may not go down the the the, the hellhole quite as fast. But it's, it's still going the wrong direction. And so my thing is, if there's an opportunity to jump in, right, and neutralize Russia, and if you've got all of NATO, including us, against Russia, including the people that are fighting in Ukraine, which, you know, I'll take a Ukrainian on my side any day at this point. Agreed. Um, I, I, I take NATO versus, I take, I take NATO and U.S., right, like just full balls in against Russia any day of the week, and we'll figure out what China's doing at our back door. But I just don't think that we have any leadership that is willing to do what I just said. You no, know, no, listen, I, I don't disagree. Let, let me make this point, because I, I think what you just laid out is actually symptomatic of something much broader. Um, first of all, what's the old saying? The first casualty of war is the truth. Yep. Um, I think we'd all agree that there's been a lot of propaganda uh, exchanged um, across borders and, and, and both, you know, slanted in favor of Russia as well as slanted towards uh, Ukraine. I agree 100 percent. I think, Steve, what you just laid out is emblematic of the broader conscious of, of America. And I think we've been primed for war. And by the way, I'd like to go back to post-2001 and, and think about what that did for the economy now we're an, we're an economy that's that's literally we're concerned about a potential recession in the next 12 to 18 months and this is a result of another cascade of issues that we'll get into later but what's the best way to fight a recession a lot of times it's war and so i that's why i think it actually might be more likely than not that nato could get involved um in a more active way or even in a direct way because a lot of people share that same outrage myself included so I think that, and I hate to put it this way, but we've also been propagandized to some extent to, to be hungry for that war and from a public uh, opinion standpoint, embrace a war if it were to materialize, which I think it, it seems almost likely that it will. Because again, I don't see any off ramps for Putin from this point on. And by the way, even if there were an off ramp, that doesn't mean sanctions go away. It doesn't mean supply chains are unsnarled. And it certainly doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to have Russian energy, gas, uh, soft and hard commodities back onto a global marketplace anytime soon. That's just not going to happen. Uh, so I actually, I, I agree with you. I think we, we agree in many ways uh, outside of the fact that 
I, I think it's actually probably likely that this does materialize, and I, I, it, it makes me uncomfortable because, it, to your point, it's not what we want. Nobody wants to see kind of a, a global war, but I think it's almost inevitable at this point because Putin's been very clear. And by the way, if nobody listened to his speech that he gave on uh, just the, the, the eve of February 24th that he gave, you can listen to the translation. I mean, it was totally unhinged. I mean, that's when I knew, I'm like, this guy's going in and he doesn't give, you know, a, 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 can we say fuck on this? We say whatever the fuck you want, man. Come on. Okay. Did you, you just said, ask me to say fuck on this show? You talk about dicks getting ripped off multiple times and you're worried about saying fuck? Yeah. Genitalia <laughs> mutilation is okay. But Elon Musk it. hasn't bought us to censor us yet, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Free speech. Public square. But anyway, so that, that was just the point I wanted to make was that I think the, the American citizen has largely been conditioned to be prepared psychologically and embrace this war as a, as a necessity to, to protect, uh, in this case, um, our Ukrainian allies, which... Uh, you know, I, I I agree that it's it's, you know, it's it's something that we we should really give serious consideration to to, to doing. You know, it's funny because uh, so in our studio we have a bunch of decorations. We have a 303 Enfield rifle. We have a copy of the Constitution, some whiskey, a Magic Eight Ball, and books by Winston Churchill. And what Steve just said sounds very Churchillian to me. Like, if we sit here and ignore what's in front of us, eventually it's going to pop up and be. Unavoidable. It's 100% from Winston Churchill. Okay, well. That's why I smoke his cigars. That's why he's... <laughs> this, <laughs> if we could get an endorsement from Churchill Cigars, we just did it there. But seriously, I mean, that was Winston Churchill's thing, right? He yep. was he was viewed as a hawk. He was viewed as a, a warmonger. And the guy had his flaws. He also had some phenomenal one-liners. Yes. Um, and phenomenal taste in cigars. And phenomenal taste in cigars. But... Um, I seriously wonder, like, we keep talking about we want to avoid World War III. Obviously, that's the goal. But if you concede too much, suddenly what that becomes is more than you bargained for. And if, if there's ever a Chinese-Russian alliance, which there is not now, and I'm not sure there ever will be, but if that happens, the rest of the world better get their shit together fast. Well, I mean, uh, to say that there's not a Chinese, like, like the, the China-Russian... Not a formal one. Right, there's not a formal one. There's an informal sort of support, but I mean, on it, obviously, they don't trust each other. It's an it's an economic war. Yeah, ex exactly. That that's perfect. So, um, but I wouldn't like. I'm not as much worried about. It's I, I don't think the Russia China relationship is the one. I don't think that's a driver. What I think China's looking for an opportunity, right? Sure. And they're what they're they're they don't necessarily care what happens to Russia one way or another. Right, like I mean, I think that they do from an economic standpoint, but I think that they would, they would jettison the economic need or relationship with Russia in a heartbeat, if they thought that they had a window, to you know take over, to, you know take over Taiwan and, and, and exert but, more but control. That's why they won't do that. I think the odds of a Taiwanese invasion have gone down drastically as a result of the Russia-Ukraine issue, because China's looking at the way Russia has been isolated from a global macroeconomic standpoint and they China cannot afford especially with what's going on with their this COVID and this BA2 or whatever this variant is yeah and their their, their growth prospects have slowed tremendously I mean I don't know what their GDP they're, they're going from like a six percent GDP handle down to like a three I, I think there's more incentive for China to avoid a Taiwanese conflict uh, as a result of what they're seeing is the way Russia was treated via sanctions so 
which I, I, I don't know to what extent China is a major player here, other than the fact they're still buying Russia energy, which is financing the war. Outside of that, I, I actually think that the odds of a, of a Taiwan invasion have come down drastically. That's just my own opinion on it. That's 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 fair. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, to be honest, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. But I think part of the reason is, and I'll be 100 percent honest and transparent, like what you just said is is logical and it 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 plays out when you play the movie forward. That makes sense. But so much that I've seen over the last year from a political standpoint, from political leadership has not mm -hmm. been logical or sensible by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> That's true. you know, That's even true. compared That's to, true. you know, like previous things that we thought were ridiculous. And now all of a sudden, like we're at a point where, I mean, I think you, Jim, you said in the last, you know, six months that you never thought you would want to see George Bush in office again. You know what I mean? I, or, or that not, no, no, not, no. not see him in office or that you would long for the days of I, the George W. Bush, not because you're a fan of him, but just like, you know, we thought that dealing with him were, was a big issue, and yet, like, you look at everything with, with Trump and now the shitstorm that we're in right now. Um, yeah. So please don't overplay that, because I think George W. Bush was awful. But in terms of living in reality, right. you're right. I mean, it's... Yes, I it, mean, just, just longing for that level of common sense, which what we thought back then was, was outrageous. So, I don't know. I, think, I still think it was outrageous. I, I think you're right, Ben, but I also, I just... I've just seen so much that has not followed the path of sensibility that I'm not sure that I, I, I trust that, you know, like the sensible thing is going to happen. And the funny by, thing by, is, by, oh. by the way, similarly to your point, Jim, you guys heard me say when Trump was in office, I, I never would have thought I would say I missed Obama and I wanted Obama back in office. Fair. Right. And, and the funny thing is, is like, yeah. war almost always gets justified on quote unquote moral reasons but it's all essentially economic. And we deny, we deny, you know, no one ever just says this is all about power, um, resources, and money, but it is. But we justify it on moral, on moral reasons. The U.S. has done it. It's, uh, I mean, fucking Putin justified this based on, I want to get the Nazis out of the Ukraine. I'm like, you want to get the Nazis out of a country with a Jewish president. Right. Okay, Vlad, um... Go I mean, I, and, and you're you're 100% right about the reasons behind war. Um, but and the false justification. And the fault, but the, this is not a false justification, right? Like going in and helping you. Like oh, I don't. Oh, no, not I, from us towards them. But right, the false but justification just, is. I just want to like I just want to make it that like going like I would go if, you know I I don't want to say something that and I I, I know we're trying that, not to go right, right. But I'm just saying like with with what we've seen. Morally defending and, Ukraine, right. I would I, feel good about it. Right, like I, I, that's that's fine. I don't think that's a lie. I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, I think that you could make an argument that the U.S. would want to go in there just to stop what's happening. But I think we all know that there are there's money and right. resources and well, all that stuff. But we'll the go Russian into that invasion decision. is essentially entirely economic. Yes, I mean that's why he went in. Right. Yes. I mean, because he wanted well, to. That's get, why he went in in 2014 in Crimea. This is a war that's been going on for years and years. Right. We're just now seeing it metastasize into something that's more global. And I, I agree with both of you guys. And again, I, I would encourage people, go back and listen to the comments. He, he gave this rambling speech. If you want to understand his motivations, um, his motivations are really based on nostalgia and, and this, this bizarre sense of trying to reunify the old Soviet Union. Sure. And that's why other Baltic states are, are pissing themselves right now. Look at you seeing Finland and Sweden now. Uh, Poland. Try to find, yeah, get, get into the NATO uh, alliance. I mean, 
Yeah, you, you, to understand Putin's motivations, you know, listen to his own words. I mean, he lays it out in pretty in pretty stark detail. Yeah, and, and it's it's it's. I, I mean, it's at the fundamental existence of the situation is Putin is trying to figure out where he can go without crossing that line. And I guarantee you, in 1930, whatever Hitler was like, okay, we want Alsace, Alsace Lorraine, a part of France. We believe this is really. German uh, owned, and then they move into Poland, and you know the the world was was uh, still reeling from World War One. So the desire to push back against uh, a, a tyrant was the appetite for war was just not there for economic and humanitarian reasons. And I I am genuinely terrified that we are living in the twenty twenty two version of that. We just don't want to look back into the history books and say. Yeah, that's where we're heading towards. And Ben, we, we brought you on because we love your opinion on economics. We appreciate talking uh, geopolitical issues as well. But from an economic standpoint, what are your thoughts in terms of the volatility of the markets and and um, and you know what's what, what are what, where, where's your mind at when it comes to markets? Well, I mean, I guess so. Uh, just to frame it a little, uh, just to give it a little bit more framing, um, it, you know. So the conflict in, in, in Ukraine um, is, is definitely having an impact on our markets, especially from an energy standpoint and in other, other sectors and other aspects. Um, and then we're also seeing, you know, record level inflation. Um, and, you know, obviously we've got oil prices and things like that. So that all d- directly plays into your world. So I think what I would like is for you to sort of put some perspective around what's going on with inflation, um, put some perspective around the, the energy prices, um, you know, sort of where they're at, some of the things that, you know, the U.S. has done or hasn't done, um, depending on your perspective, uh, to help lower those prices. Um, and then, I guess, overall impact, you know, like, is, you know, like we're hearing like the Biden administration putting a lot of, um, I guess, blame on what's happening in Ukraine for various things like, you know, like inflation and, and, and oil prices. But, you know, maybe talk about the validity of that and, you know, some of it's true, some of it's not, and just sort of flesh that out for people a little mm-hmm. bit more. Sure. Well, first and foremost, I mean, the Russian-Ukraine issue is a very direct input into not just market volatility, but some of the inflationary pressure that this economy is seeing. You guys touched on it earlier with regard to potential food shortages down the road and, and there's you know food crises being uh, kind of predicted by a lot of global economists even the word famine getting thrown around uh, when you think about Russia and Ukraine between the two of them it's somewhere between 12 and 15 percent of the total calories consumed by the world coming out of this region of the world particularly with wheat you know with corn there, there's also other sectors that are affected like semiconductors that need industrial gases like neon uh, obviously, aluminum, steel, iron ore, all, all of these materials. Uh, and so that adds to this inflationary pressure. It adds to the supply chain disruptions. And if you talk about the inflation we're seeing in the U.S., you know, I'm still in the camp that it's largely supply chain driven. It, was it exacerbated by some of the very loose monetary and fiscal policy that we've seen over the last couple of years? Yeah, of course it is. But, but what we're seeing is that there's a severe disruption and this is seen in the term structures of things like crude oil for example as most people probably already know 
Russia is a huge exporter of both crude oil and natural gas, particularly to uh, to Eastern Europe. Excuse me, Western Europe. Um, particularly Germany is is uh, exposed to this, and, and you know this was the 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 pipeline that had you know essentially gotten squashed as a result of the sanctions, um, and this is Nord Stream too. So, so to the extent that this has been disruptive globally, it has for a whole cascade of reasons. Uh, as it relates to the inflationary pressures in the U.S., we can look at the last. You mentioned it, Steve. We're seeing like you know 1980s level year-over-year numbers, and these are quite shocking. I will say the last two CPI prints, the, the key that I focus in on is not so much the year-over-year numbers, which are the really shocking headline numbers. It's more the month-over-month numbers, which have started to moderate. Uh, the CPI number we got last week, actually, the core CPI actually came in below expectations. Core CPI meaning food and energy, food and energy are stripped out of it, right? And so that's more goods and services, and that gives you a little bit of a sense of what this looks like with, you know, as if some of the supply chains are starting to finally moderate, which would be extraordinarily helpful. Now, keep in mind, we've got a, th- th- this is somewhat being politicized too in the U.S. As you know, you just mentioned Biden calls it the Putin uh, price increase. He's very, you know, he's gone into the strategic oil reserves to try to alleviate pressure at the gas pump, which is kind of pissing in the wind as far as I'm concerned. That's putting a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound, you know. <laughs> uh, so so there's, there's a political angle to this too. And I think, you know, that's part of what's further riled markets is because as apolitical as the Federal Reserve is supposed to be, I think there's pressure on the Fed to really get aggressive about the way they approach inflation, which, by the way, is one of their only two mandates, which is one is full employment, which clearly we have a very tight labor market. The other is price stability, which is related to inflation. So, so they're attacking this problem not so much with – I mean, they've already done the 25 basis point rate hikes. We're expecting the 50 basis points in the first week of May. But they're also attacking it with their second most uh, useful tool, right, which is just talking, right, job owning, right? And so when these federal uh, Federal Reserve governors are coming out and basically saying they need to crush demand and that they need to be aggressive about inflation with regard to policy normalization, the, the stock markets are coming in as a result. So it's all about multiple compression. How do you price equities if you know that inflation – excuse me, not inflation, but interest rates, cost of capital – is moving higher in a meaningful way. And so a lot of the work has been done already by the market. So, so what's curious, and this is the big question on the street, which is how much does the Fed need to do that the market isn't already doing when you look at a two-year now that's back up at what, like a 270 handle, something like that? Um, it's going to go higher for sure. But does it take a little bit of the pressure off the Fed to, to maybe not have to be as aggressive? I hope that's the case, but but my sense is that the Fed is going to basically uh, take a really aggressive approach, kind of raise rates until they break something, so to speak. Again, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah, I, I use that line twice this week. You know, it's funny yeah, because I mean, that's... And, yeah, and, and, and by the way, and the Fed can't solve supply chain issues. They can only they can only deal with the cost of capital. And so that's what they're going to do. And so my concern, my deepest concern is that we do fall into a recession, hopefully a mild one, but I do think the calls for recession are, are worth um, given serious consideration. And if that is the case, uh, it's really bad for risk assets and, and U.S. equities. So particularly tech, particularly long duration stuff. And, and we talked about this last time we, you and I, uh, us, us guys spoke. 
so i mean I, i'm a lot more bearish than i had been uh, for these reasons and and it's it you know they all dovetail it's a cascading effect um you know the russia ukraine issue is somewhat at the epicenter of it um but when it comes to the oil uh energy natural gas uh hard and soft commodities meaning you know aluminum steel iron ore as well as wheat soybeans corn uh it creates a lot of problems and by the way there's second order effects right when you think about fertilizers uh, nitrogen, which is used to create some of these fertilizers, um, it creates all kinds of problems um, in terms of producing food out here, even in the West. So we have some serious problems ahead of us, uh, and our resolution in, in uh, Russia-Ukraine doesn't appear to be eminent. So I think we need to be prepared for some of these realities. You know, I always wonder, I know that the U.S. food market is very controlled and manipulated, release and destruction of 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 food producing uh, commodities is very manipulated. And I wonder if a situation like this will make the government change their approach and, you know, can we still feed the world with what we produce if we weren't controlling it based on an economic, um, you know, motivation? Um, and I have no idea how much so how much soy, how much wheat, how much whatever gets thrown away every year under the uh, auspice of if this is on the market, prices would drop, farmers couldn't do what they have to do, they would quit farming, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I know just blah, 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 a really, really big issue. <laughs> right. But but seriously, I'm like, I wonder, like, if we wanted to feed the entire world, could we do it easily? We just choose not to because of economic motivations. And I think the answer is yes, although we obviously can't prove it. Well, we do sub keep in mind we, we subsidize farmers in the U.S. to produce these crops. I mean, it's, or to not. <laughs> I agree. I don't think we should. We should let a free market um, sort out those markets. But that, but that is something we've been doing now for decades. So, to that extent, that that is manipulation. I would say, and this is an important point. Um, you know, when you talk about further manipulation because I've seen people mention this too and because they're concerned about food prices and, and, and potentially corporations greedy corporations taking additional profit and, and I kind of I have a bit of an issue with that because when you look at some of these food producers in, in many cases and it's not just the food producers it's also you know the retailers like you know Walmart Kroger Albertsons etc sure. who are all fighting for market share and are more than willing in, in most cases, particularly Walmart, others like Kraft Heinz, ConAgra Foods, Tyson Foods, all facing their own set of issues, but all centralized about, you know, increased input costs. You know, these guys are generally fighting for share and they're, they're eating a lot of some of these costs. It's not like, you know, I was talking to a, a gentleman on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and I, and I and encouraged him to listen to the Walmart conference call from their most recent quarter or listen to the most recent conference call from the Kraft Heinz folks. They're telling you straight up what the, what the math is and how, what they're dealing with. And they are taking a hit to their margins in order to protect the price. I mean, in some cases, prices are going up, of course, but they're not taking prices up to, to take full margin. They're taking less margin. They're trying to maintain that, that customer. They don't want to see trading down, right? If I used to drink... You know, I'll use the liquor example since you guys know I'm a former liquor guy. Instead of drinking Grey Goose, I'm going to go down to Skull, you know. <laughs> oh. They don't want to see that happen. Bringing Russia back right. to do it too. Way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, right? So, so, so when it comes to manip manipulation of food prices, 
uh, I think the biggest culprit is government intervention and subsidy. Um, and so that's just something to keep in mind and think about because uh, it, it, the notion that it's, you know, greedy corporations that are trying to steal from John Q. Citizen, um, I, I think that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit misguided and, and there's some folks out there that, that I think if they better understood the issue, they might look at it through a different lens. Right. I mean, I think, you know, as you were, once you started to bring Walmart into it, I realized the direction you were going. And the thing I wrote down on my notepad was thin margins, right? Um, or right. thinner margins um, over this time. And, and again, I think a big thing that gets left out is that, yes, we're seeing inflation and prices are going up, but these prices aren't nearly as high as they could be if corporations like Walmart and others didn't eat some of the costs and just say, okay, we're not going to jack the price up, you know, 50% like we could so we can make sure we stay at the same profit level. We're going to eat some of this and we're going to hopefully try to keep, we have to raise them a little bit so that we do have some form of a margin and we can basically keep the lights on, but we're not going to really max this thing out just for the sake of it. Because if we do that, then we basically force people to sort of, you know, trade down or we force people out of the market, and given that we're Walmart, we can't really like we don't we, that that has even broader implications um, than 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 some of these other than some of the other outcomes. So, um, you know, like that. I think, like you said, if more people understood that um, and really understood the numbers, right? Because they see the billions of dollars that these people make, and they see that you know CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year and giving themselves pay raises, like all, like that's what sort of drives how people think about the, the how business works, right? But they don't understand, they <laughs> actually don't understand the actual nuts and bolts and the numbers of it. And so it's, it's hard to have this conversation because even though this all may make sense, they're going to say, okay, but then why does the CEO get paid $200 million a year or whatever it might be or 35 right. million or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's a, and it's just like, okay, that's a good point in, in free market or whatever. Maybe he doesn't have to make that much, but that's still, even if he gives back half of his salary or all of his salary, it still is, is not going to bring the cost of your, uh, you know, body wash down any. Well, that, that you just, that's perfect uh, example because that, that's the other component too. I mean, when you look at, you know, what, what's more commoditized food, something we all need or scented body wash, you know, so Johnson and Johnson or Procter and Gamble, when they raise prices, those are probably stickier than the price of a tomato or a potato from a farmer or, or coming from some of these vertically integrated, by the way, there's a whole, we could go off on a whole, we should actually do another episode and talk about some of these vertically integrated, uh, controlled environment, agricultural, ag tech businesses that have figured out a way to create these mega greenhouses and use robotics and AI and create these environments where they're producing much higher yield than traditional ag and they're pesticide free and they have huge yields versus what you would expect otherwise um, in traditional farming. There's all kinds of solutions like this that are tech-based that are starting to emerge. Uh, but the point I was gonna make was, you know, food items and foodstuffs are far more commoditized. So there's price pressure. You know, if the price of tomatoes goes up one week, it might come down the next. I mean, if you look at your grocery store shelf, I mean, or just go to like a Walmart website, for example, you know, I've seen eggs fluctuate from a, you know, an 18, uh, 18 count carton of eggs go from you know two dollars and sixty cents up to three dollars and forty cents and then back down to two dollars and ninety cents 
in other words, the prices aren't that sticky on food items because that's where you're fighting for market share. I want the best food prices for my customers so that they keep coming back to my store. The problem is the, the CPG guys, the Procter's and Gambles and, and uh, P&Gs and so forth, when they raise the price of body wash from $3.50 to $4, that's pretty sticky. That's probably not coming back down because that's not as commoditized as food items. So so there, there's a nuance to this whole discussion about price increases that people should, you know, better understand. It's, it's, it's easy to just look at it and make a blanket statement like, oh, greedy corporations. In some cases, that's true. In most cases, it's not. Uh, because, again, you know, white label products, you know, that scented body wash that J&J is charging $4 for, Walmart probably has a private label that's, you know, a dollar twenty-five cheaper that you know you, you could trade down to, and th those are the consumer decisions that are being made in a real-time basis. So, it's it's a far more nuanced issue than to just say, oh yeah, corporations are greedy and that's what's happening. It really does come down to the granularity of it. You know, foodstuffs and highly commoditized spaces versus, you know, CPG and some of the stuff where you know where taking prices is far more sticky. So, Ben, talk to us a little bit about just uh, you know market volatility. Right. And what and really um, sort of what you're seeing and, you know, should people be panicking? Should people be, you know, like what sort of conversations should people be having with their, you know, financial wealth managers or, or whatever they're doing or themselves if they're taking care of their finances themselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I think it's first of all, I'll just preface the whole thing by saying this is probably one of the most challenging and trying trading environments I've ever seen. I mean, certainly since 2018, when we were ending uh, a hiking cycle back then, you guys might remember, you know, the market came down almost 25% on the S&P from October that year, right, right into Christmas Eve, where this the sell off kind of found a bottom. Um, and I was actually looking at some charts today and looking at the NASDAQ where, you know, we've seen the most multiple expansion and looking at that relative to 2000 and 2001 and seeing some of these similarities that frankly scares the shit out of me because I think it's a, an area, it's, it's, an, it's a time to be very, very cautious. And, you know, normally I, as I'm a secular bull, as you guys know, sure. uh, sometimes, sometimes you have to be a tactical bear. And, and I think this is a time to be very, very cautious because, you know, again, there's a lot of uncertainty about how, first of all, the, the, not just the, the policy normalization. I think we, we kind of have that sort of priced in. It's the pace of it and the nature of the Fed running off its balance sheet. And just, just to briefly explain what that means, I mean, is the Fed owns a ton of uh, U.S. debt in the form of treasury bonds and T-bills, which are shorter term. And as they roll those off, some are just going to roll off as they mature. Others, they may actively sell. It dries up liquidity in the markets. And that creates situations where you have, you know, you have, you know, wider spreads. You have potentially blowouts in corporate debt. So corporate debt, while money was really pretty much free over right. the last couple of years, you know, corporate debt. These are junk bonds. If you look at the difference between high yield debt and and investment grade debt, they've traded almost parity, maybe like a twenty basis point spread, where they really should be like a two and a half three percent spread where you know you're getting a much higher yield on riskier debt so junk bonds versus investment grade so so all of these things are are kind of adding fuel to this volatility fire 
I will say that volatility, if we just look at it as a measure of the VIX, you know, you guys heard me talk about sure. the VIX, which is essentially a measure of the S&P 500 volatility based on derivatives contracts. So, you know, the option space. Um, that has come in a bit, you know, where it was. I mean, we were up in 33, 34, 35 territory, even north of that. Um, when we hit the February lows, uh, also the January lows. A lot of red. But, yeah, which was not fun. I mean, it, it was a brutal quarter. I don't know anybody who didn't lose some money in that first quarter, myself included. Believe me, I, it was probably one of the worst quarters I've ever had. And um, it's really, uh, I don't think, abated yet because, again, we need that resolution in Eastern Europe, which doesn't appear to be on the horizon. We're going to be fighting these inflation numbers and what that's doing to motivate the Fed in terms of not just accelerating monetary policy normalization, but actually move forward with, with quantitative tightening as opposed to we've always talked about QE, quantitative easing. Right. Now we're in this quantitative tightening phase. And if they're aggressively moving forward with that, what it does is it, again, raises the cost of capital and a lot of our favorite stocks, right? You know, the Googles, the Amazons, the Netflix, right? The Facebooks. Mm -hmm that puts major pressure on their multiple in terms of how they're priced, price to earnings ratios. As those come in, the prices of the stocks come in and it becomes a negative feedback loop where people, to your point, you, you asked the right question, Steve. You said, should people be panicking? I mean, you should. hopefully you should never panic, but I do think there's gonna be more price pressure and I think you wanna be um, kind of prepared for that. And, and so, you know, some of the trades that are working right now are not trades that most people are accustomed to. Do. I mean, commodities, I mean, but, but look at what energy has been a clear outperformer based on, right. you know, uh, not just the price of crude skyrocketing, but the fact that there's been systemic underinvestment in this segment for, for decades. And a lot of that has been exacerbated by these ESG, uh, you know, kind of restrictions, right? I mean, we've, we've actually de-incentivized our most critical uh, energy infrastructure from producing more energy because we're worried about what the weather might look like in a hundred years. So that's something that's created a real problem and part of the reason why we're seeing so much volatility and it's, it's reflected in the term structure. If you look at a term structure, WTI crude, it's in what's called severe backwardation, meaning the front month contract is way above what a, a contract is six, seven, eight, 12 months out yeah. in the future, uh, which tells you that you have a severe shortage of availability at the moment. I, I feel like you're trying to draw me into my uh, nerdy environmentalist mode and Steve's giving me the don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Look, I actually avoided eye contact. <clears throat> so he couldn't I, do that. I, well, anyway, I mean, I think he was saying, I don't think he, <laughs> he wasn't saying that because he gave a shit about your environmental thoughts. I think it was, <laughs> I just, it was more directly related to. I'm his aware and uh, I was not going to go there. Okay. I just was not going to uh, let it go unacknowledged. Uh, the white knight of the environment, ladies and gentlemen. Thank um, you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'm still wearing green. I'm the green. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and what's funny is once we get in, you were talking about the underinvestment in in um, in, inter in the energy sector. Um, you know, I think I told you a while back that I, I sort of kind of went not all in, but I, I just I've, I had a feeling that Exxon was like severely severely under undervalued, underpriced. Um, so I went kind of heavy in with an investment on them um, back when Exxon was under thirty dollars a share, and now they're up over eighty. 
Um, and and it's sort of proving out, but not for the reasons that I want it to prove out. That wasn't a humble you know? brag. That was a brag. No, well, it's. I mean, it kind of sucks when you look at the reason why the you know Exxon stock. I'm pushing back. You kind of yeah. I mean, it just you know, it's just like when sometimes when you can see some of this stuff play out in real time based off what your own personal experience is. Investing in funeral homes when there's a pandemic. Well, yeah, exactly. Which you know, getting getting very way to do that by the way. Getting very Ozarky without without meaning to, but. You know, so so shifting away from that a little bit, you know, but continuing in the market space, um, you know, so Jim is a big Elon Musk fan. Uh, ben, I know that you're not a huge Elon Musk fan, but you you have been willing to acknowledge that Tesla's, yeah. you know, not your favorite company, but it's probably worth throwing, you know, a little money that direction. Um, mm-hmm. But he made a huge, huge mess of things um, just from a media standpoint by you know buying a, a large number of shares in, in, into Twitter and then you know proposing that he wanted to buy the whole company um, I'll just give my two cents on this I think that it was sort of it, it was a bluff to begin with um, I, I, I think we all knew that there was no way that BlackRock and Vanguard were going to give up their shares in Twitter to Elon Musk um, and and I think Elon Musk knew that uh, and I think that this was all you know, for show to, to, to really sort of drive the, the, uh, the, the stock price of Twitter up in, and not necessarily, well, no, I mean, I think it was, I think it was more about market manipulation than his true desire to be the champion of free speech. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is on this. Well, I just think it was a vanity, you know, vanity project for him. It's, 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 you know, there's not much rhyme or reason to a lot of the things, uh, Elon Musk does. Um, to your point, uh, you know, I, I don't find him to be a very serious person, frankly. Um, I, I listened to his TED talk on, uh, I think it was on Thursday, where he was he was confronted with this issue by uh, a, a very astute uh, interviewer who was I didn't I wasn't familiar with the gentleman. My apologies for that, but he asked him all the right questions, and Elon Musk was very much on his heels. He didn't have anything very insightful or articulate to say about how he would you know, kind of improve this digital public square other than continue to pound the table on this edit button as if that is is anything of any kind of meaningful consequence. But but to the point that what he did with, with Twitter, you know, he was very strategic about acquiring his 9% stake before making the hostile takeover proposition. We gave him leverage with the board insofar as if they rejected the board, they would obviously, uh, excuse me, he would obviously liquidate his shares and tank the stock. As you guys know, as soon as news broke that he had acquired a substantial position in the company, the stock ramped, which again is, is you know, there's, there's this is a market that's rife with speculation and, and that's, that's part of the froth that needs to still get skimmed out of this market. But in my view, this was a vanity project. I'm not so sure that he did it to, to juice the price of his shares to make money. I mean, he doesn't really need the money, but what he does need is to feed his ego. I, so to me, this was really just, you know, it's a play project for him. He, he, he's a big time kind of super user, if you want to call him that on Twitter. So, uh, and, and he certainly has <laughs> criticisms. And, and by the way, yeah, I, you I can't use that as he buys it, by the way. Yeah, well, listen. I would, I would, I would note too. I, I agree with him in that 
with the way that Twitter is, you know, quote unquote regulated in a very arbitrary way, right? Who gets kind of censored or kicked off or whatever. I do agree with him that that is somewhat problematic, but you know, my personal view is that the issue with Twitter is there's too many anonymous accounts that, you know, people will say some very nasty things that they would never say um, in, in, sure. a, in a one-on-one human contact. Uh, and some people who are not anonymous also talk that way, but it's mostly these anonymous accounts that really create um, a, a negative environment and just it drags the the whole, you know, the whole uh, public square into more of a public sewer. Well, and, and that's, I, so, I so that's problematic. And and I think one of my issues with the idea of saying social media is a new public square is that well, if I'm standing in the public square, you know who I am, right? Yeah, exactly. And and exactly. and so you, you don't have any anonymity in that case, right? Exactly. And so and and I and I think that's where I have a hard time, like really sort of transitioning and saying that, you know, constitutional First Amendment rights apl- should apply, you know, to social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, because of that anonymity factor, right? Aside from the fact that they're owned from private companies, right, or they're owned by. has even said that these corporations are should be treated like people and should have constitutional rights which means that they have the right to control their entity how they want to control it and if they don't want to let you talk because they don't like what you say then they have the right and ability to do that as which has been you know backed up and supported by our government and now all of a sudden the same people who supported that decision of making corporations essentially people um, are wanting the rights of that particular of those particular people stripped away right like so it's just like weird sort of you know like nonsensical circular thing like we're all about you know individual corporations being able to be treated um and and have the same rights but then all of a sudden when they turn it against us well we don't like it as much but we still want that sort of separation we still want it to exist because there are these corporations that we like that we want to have those advantages if that makes sense yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Twitter's a private business. Uh, it's publicly traded. A lot of people conflate the two. Uh, it's still, they can do what they want. I mean, they're not a government, you know, owned entity. They can create their own rules and do what they want. If you don't like it, you can do what our former president did. You can go out and fail at launching your own social media platform. <laughs> Multiple others have tried and done the same. Um, or you can just simply opt out. I mean, nobody's got a gun to your head and says you got to be on Twitter. I mean, you still have free speech, even right. if you don't have a Twitter account. You can sure. go out and say what you want, do what you want, publish what you want. Um, so I agree with you 100% there. Um, and so, and the Musk, uh, you know, again, I, I just saw that the Twitter board over the weekend came back with what's called a poison pill tactic, meaning essentially if uh, it, it, they can essentially issue new shares uh, to, to um, you know, kind of fend off this, this hostile takeover. What, what's dilute dilute the price of it. Yeah, dil- dilute all the existing shareholders. So what's going to happen here, and I, I warned about, you guys might have seen my tweet on Thursday and kind of warned about this. The, the ultimate uh, contingency of people that get negatively impacted by this are going to be the Twitter share, not just the Twitter shareholders that exist now, but the ones that piled in, it, you know, the Elon fanboys, many of them that decided, oh my God, I'm gonna buy Twitter shares because Elon's taking it over, these people are gonna get crushed because this thing is gonna 
it's going to roll out. It's going to roll over in pretty substantial ways because there's just too much risk now. I mean, even at, what did he say? 5420. And I know the 420 thing. You've kind of got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> um, and by the way, that <laughs> my weed pen is right in front of me, by the way. Yeah, and it's, a pre it's a premium over where he bought it. But keep in mind, Twitter had traded over $70, not more than what, 18 months ago. So it, it wasn't, you know, e even there, there are plenty of folks out there that would argue that's not uh, a, a fair pricing in terms of its full on enterprise value or potential value. So, you know, the people that are going to get hurt are Twitter shareholders, and, and that's really a shame. Um, and, and by the way, the Tesla, his Tesla stock rolled over as well, because, I mean, again, how many, how, how much bandwidth does one individual have? I mean, I, I think he should stop clowning around with social media platforms. And by the way, he's like I said earlier, he's not a serious person. I mean, just read his tweets. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm just a private citizen. I, I'm not a big time high visibility CEO. I don't tweet that kind of nonsense. And the guy's just not serious. And so I, if I were him, I would focus on making cars and creating rockets and just do that really well and just leave, leave the social media to, to others. You know, <coughs> excuse me. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of a, of a moment and say, Steve described my being kind of a fanboy of Elon Musk, and he's not wrong. I have been uh, the 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 bloom is off the rose with me and Elon Musk because uh, so he he and I, I I found out I'm actually like a couple months older than him, and he's about fifty billion dollars richer than me or whatever <laughs> right. billion, whatever number of billions he's that much more wealthy than me. Good for him. Um. So, you know, nerd alert, I, I just found the guy fascinating. And I heard stories about him when it was the, the Hyperloop or whatever was his project where he said, I don't even care about the money. Let's just make travel cheap and whatever. I was a huge fanboy. And I've really, I maintained it for a long time. But the last couple years, really, but definitely the last several months, it's hard for me to, <laughs> to, to keep... Keep the love alive, <laughs> keep the torch lit, whatever you want to say. Because he, you're right, he's kind of a clown. And I respect people who do multiple things and, and have you know multiple aspects to their life. Like when someone's a celebrity and a businessman and a whatever, and as much as you know I cannot stand Donald Trump, if you look at him, you can be like, the guy was involved in professional wrestling, professional sports, real estate, whatever. I, I respect the um, desire to be out on multiple levels, but eventually, if you're a clown, you're a fucking clown. And Elon Musk feels a lot more like a clown than a legitimate entrepreneur and innovator to me right now. And it hurts. But if I'm going to pat myself on the back a bit, I'm willing to look at my past perspectives and my current perspective and go, okay, I was wrong. I uh, I gave this guy too much credit, and I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm evolving. Uh, let's go with evolving. So anyway, there's my Elon Musk uh, uh, pushback. But yeah, yeah, like your moment of atonement. No, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but listen, I, I also want to be clear. Like, I'm not saying that he's not an intelligent person, or that sure. he's got, you know, he's he's clearly a very, he's a savant. You know, I mean, and that's the way I would describe him. But he's, you know, again, you know, he's not a pretty, he's a, he's a very awkward guy, very socially Certainly. awkward guy. I mean, and, and I yeah, understand. I'm an engineer. Doing. I'm around awkward people all the time. 
you are, are yeah, also yeah, awkward as hell. Say that again, Steve. I said you are also awkward as hell, so let's not leave you out of the mix here. Go on, go on, Ben. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say that he's. I, I don't want to like take a piss on what he's accomplished. Of course, he's he's done amazing things, and, and you know I, I give him tremendous credit for the, the the foresight that he had with Tesla, and also even more so with SpaceX, which I think is fascinating. But again, I just that doesn't make you. I mean, if I, I mean Jeff, and listen, say what you want about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is a serious guy. If, if you were to listen to an interview, somebody sit down and speak with Jeff Bezos, he's a very thoughtful and serious person. Elon Musk is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> um, and, and so, I, you know, for me, and this is just through my own lens, I, I just tend to really admire and respect guys that I find to be serious. And so, I, I have no. You know, no qualms about Elon Musk's uh, accomplishments and that he's actually a very intelligent guy. I, I grant that point 100 percent. But really, to your point, Jim, he, he really is just kind of a clown. And, and I think that's detrimental to what he's trying to achieve, because I think some of his his, his well, That was your point. I just didn't well, I think the I think the thing with Musk is that I think he recognizes his awkwardness. He recognizes that his brain works a little bit different than everybody else's. And it has afforded him advantages in being able to, to, you know, be creative outside of a space where a lot of people never would go. Um, a lot of people will say, well, he stole the idea from Tesla from somebody else, and which is why he named it Tesla, because it was somebody else's idea, blah, 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 that whole thing. Um, okay, fine, whatever. But either way, he's got Tesla where it's at now, where, it, you know, no one knew what the fuck it was before. So, um uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that his family was very wealthy and that he started, you know, halfway to home and, and all that other stuff. And, and look, and all that born is... Born on third base, as they say. Right. I mean, he was born on third base and, you know, you had a blind catcher at home. That being said, um, he still he still has accomplished some pretty amazing things. Um, there's been a lot of people who were bo born on third base who haven't been sure. able to do shit um, and have pissed, you know, entire fortunes away. You know, I mean, so... The, the, He's still, like you said, he's accomplished a lot, but I think the, the really the craziest thing about it is that you have two of the richest people in the world, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, and they're complete opposite people, right? And, and there are some people who say people like Bezos, um, you know, if they, if, they, if they sort of analyzed him in a vacuum away from everything that he has accomplished, they would say that he's too tight and that he's too rigid. Right, and then there's other people that if you took Elon Musk and you put him in a vacuum, they say, well, he's a complete goofball, and he's a, you know he's too awkward and he's too weird, you know, to really accomplish anything, right? But yet you look at them, and then those are the two people that are literally on top of the world in terms of, you know, financial accomplishments, right? And so I think to a broader point, it's, you know, success, however you measure it, right? Whether it's by money or by influence or, or what have you. Um, there's there's just different paths to get there, right? I mean, I think they all all those paths rely require um, you know dedication and they require thoughtfulness. Um, but how you get there, how you interact with people on your way, like you can you can you can be a shark, um, you could be a, a, a coach, a, a, a player's coach or whatever, but you can you can still find high levels of success, and I think that's. The one thing to take away from from from, Be from Bezos and Musk, um, you know, I'm not a huge Musk fan at all. I, I just the guy just kind of rubs me the wrong way because I think he is very much a highly highly intelligent class clown, 
Um, and those and those sort of people, like I went to school with, I, like I went to high school and college with people that were super smart, but they were such, like literally class clowns that it irked me, right? It's just like, look, I may not want to be in this class, but I don't need you to be a distraction in this class just because you understand everything light years ahead of everyone. And so when I see Musk, I just see a whole slew of people that I really didn't like in high school. So maybe this is more my own mental issue with people that I probably need to talk about with my therapist more than on this show. But still, um, we'll be charging you for this episode. You should. You really should. Um, we're going to get into some but issues I have is, with my dad, too. Because I, I once had somebody ask me, you know, why I, I wouldn't get long Tesla, because, I mean, it's been a highly successful company. And they continue to, you know, do a great job in terms of innovation in the EV space. Um, and you know, obviously, there's there's, you know, questions about multiple, and they're, you know, they're they're, you know, uh, what the stock's trading at is it is it justified? But you know, the response that I had at the time was because truly the the, you know, the the leadership it's it's a liability. I mean, we've seen it before with things that he's done or said, where it's moved the price of the stock in a meaningful way. And it's like, you know, when you're an investor, you don't want to absorb that additional incremental risk based on leadership. Leadership should actually be the opposite. They should be a calming force on the way a, a, a business is priced. And so, and so I just thought I'd add that anecdote because, you know, while Tesla is an amazing company and it's done amazing things at the helm uh, with, excuse me, with Elon Musk at the helm, the problem is that he himself and that quirkiness and that savant nature of him and the class clown or whatever you want to call him is a liability to shareholders. And that's just risk that there's a lot of investors out there just simply don't want to absorb. And by the way, most people don't realize that they've got exposure to Tesla because it's part of the S&P 500. So if you've got a 401k or you've got some kind of an index fund that's tied to the S&P, which almost anybody that has some kind of tax deferred retirement account does, you have exposure to Elon Musk and Tesla. So whether you like it or not, so just something to, and, and to perfectly prove your point elon musk went on the joe rogan podcast smoked a blunt and tesla stock fell 10 percent even though he yeah. was doing something that had no impact on the stock but then i mean you could also say okay so tell me what the tesla price was when it fell that 10 percent on that day and then tell me what their tesla price is oh, right it's, now it's probably 50 percent higher and now. so in in my my point with that is i think that the people who are elon musk tesla fan boys and girls will say i'm willing to take that risk because through his leadership, we've seen exponential growth. And so to, I'm to willing Ben's to take, point, right, Elon Musk I, is a clown. Fine, but I mean, if you, you know, if you're a person who's been invested invested in Tesla since day one, then maybe you look at it and say, yeah, I guess. I mean, but I'm willing to take that 10% fall because I'm going to gain it back times five. Well, while I'm sitting here well, in well, my hot tub, this is a key point. What about the what about the fanboy that knew he was going to go on the Joe Rogan podcast and levered up ahead of it, right? And when the stock fell ten percent, he got hit with a margin call, right? Yeah, he would have loved true. To have held on the stock, but he got crushed because Elon Musk decided to clown himself and smoke a fucking joint on the. I mean, when you see a mega cap name move ten percent, it's very important people understand this. People get crushed people get liquidated people get margin calls that's a serious problem hey ben do me a favor explain what a margin call is a margin call means that you have uh leverage on your position meaning you only have a certain amount of your own capital put against the shares you're borrowing the rest 
And if, and if the stock price falls below a certain threshold and it's below your margin maintenance, meaning, you know, there's a certain threshold by which you can't finance it any longer, that means you're forced to sell the stock at whatever price it's trading at. And that could be it's obviously going to be at a substantial loss in most cases. So that's what a margin call is. And they happen all the time. Certainly right. And so I just, yeah. And I just want to throw it out there because some people may not understand like, what it is. Steve knows what it is, but. Well, what I'm saying is like not everyone understands what it is. And so just to put it very simply, it's just when you are investing in the market and instead of using all of your own money, like let's say you trade with TD Ameritrade, then you would have a margin. And basically it's like, you know, when you go to the casino and they're just like, all right, sure, you can bet on our money because you've bet with us to a certain amount, to a certain point. Um, and you've, you've, you've amassed a certain amount of money where we trust that you will be able to pay it back. And if not, we'll call you and you will have to pay us back by liquidating whatever stock that you have to get yourself back, you know, back right. If that, I guess, yeah, is an oversimplification. Cases, but in some cases, yeah, in some cases you can meet a margin call by just putting more cash in the account. But keep in mind also, depending on the nature of your account, sometimes you're just liquidated without even, they'll just sell your stock. You don't, you don't have a choice. They'll sell it for you and then tell you, hey, sorry, you agreed to this. That's what's called like a portfolio margin account. There's reg T margin and then there's portfolio margin. We could get into those maybe in another call. But, but yeah, it, when, when you see a mega, not, I mean, look, small cap, mid cap stocks move like that all the time, eight, nine, 10, 12%. But when a mega cap name like that moves, that creates tremendous uh, ripples in the financial systems and it, it's problems for a lot of people. So, you know, it's just important that people understand, you know, one little act like that, like smoking a joint on a podcast for, for a, you know, a one trillion plus uh, mega uh, market cap company to move on a, on a, just a bad decision like that. Like, do you really want that risk as a shareholder? Myself personally, I don't. Right. Right. And, I agree with you, but I think that there are people who will, the, if they were to push back, that that would be their, that would be their pushback, right? Sure. Um, well, and, those are the people that hopefully would be able to come up with the cash to maintain their position. And if they right. did, then good for them because they, you know, they, 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 they realize the rebound. But it's just, you know, again, when I think about corporate leadership, I want a calming influence, not, uh, not a liability. So transitioning a little bit in terms of leadership and, and we're going to go to a whole nother arena, right? A whole nother other arena um, and sure. shift over into sports a little bit. Um, and I just, sure. and cause you know, we just want to cover a different, you know, different topics with you and you're a pretty astute guy. Um, so we'll jump into the sports arena. So Cleveland, um, our baseball team changed the name from the Indians to the guardians. Um, I know that you're a diehard Cleveland fan. You're a diehard Indians fan. Um, you want to share your thoughts on on that situation and and how it's sort of playing out for you now that the Guardians are actually playing games, uh, meaningful games in Cleveland. Sure, and I'll just try to keep it brief because I I, it's, I know it's a topic of passion for a lot of folks. I mean, certainly me. You know, I grew up in Cleveland. I I, I had moved away for ten years or so, but you know, obviously uh, as a Clevelander, you know, part of your kind of DNA, part of your identity is, you know, is, are the sports teams that you celebrate and support. Um, and obviously the, the Indians were, were very uh, much one of those for me. And, you know, one of the, just a couple of things. I mean, number one, I, I started to kind of move away a little bit from the Indians when there was the Chief Wahoo um, 
you know, controversy, and, and I was a little bit off put by that because I think it was largely misunderstood uh, and, and kind of being vilified. And then when they've, you know, kind of elevated it to a name change, a full on name change, and, and again, in the context of, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs doing the tomahawk chop, right, or the, you know, the Florida State Seminoles with a guy running around on a horse throwing spears in the middle of the, the, the field. But we're going to pick on the Cleveland Indians. I mean, we, you know, we, what do we got? A guy in the stands beating a drum, and that's that means we're all racist. Um, <laughs> well, I, I we, was, did, we did have a guy in the stands beating on a drum, but yeah, yeah, we did. But I'm I mean, joking. Is, I'm is joking. that really Sorry, to be construed no, as like no, cultural I'm appropriation? When trying to be funny, trying to be funny, failing miserably. Have recently won a Super Bowl doing literally the tomahawk chop and the and the you know that kind yeah, of sure. thing. Sure. the, I mean, give me a break. So I was very off put by it um, as a fan. So that aside, you know, and, you, and we, we talked about this briefly before we got on air. You know, I, I also think that it's just an enormously bad business decision as evidenced by the challenges that the organization had to just even, uh, you know, sell out the home opener, which, gosh, you guys know this. I mean, normally the home opener is sold out three, four months in advance. Uh, you know, and, and think about the cascading effects of that. What does that do to the local businesses that surround Progressive Field that rely on that business? What does it mean for the apparel sales? I mean, I can just tell you people, like I grew up playing baseball. A lot of my friends that I played baseball with, we all love the Indians. You know, none. I can't think of one of us that are like, oh, yeah, we're running around. We're ready to go out there and buy a Guardian's hat or Guardian's <laughs> jacket or whatever. So I just I, I just think from a business standpoint, it's also kind of a questionable uh, decision. And and listen, a lot of people say we did it because we wanted that all star game and everything like that. But but I mean, does that I don't think that makes a, a whole lot of sense in terms of, you know, your addressable market. And if you're going to do something proactively that limits your addressable market, people like me that, you know, we do have the money to go out and do these things and we're choosing not to just as a result. And again, very off put just by trying to watch some of these games and just it just doesn't sit well with me to hear him call the guardians it's just very strange um i'm, I'm still uh you know I'm, I'm still very bearish on the whole proposition and, and that's kind of where i fall in the guardians issue interesting you know I, I want to say a few things one i'm thrilled the indians sorry fuck i'm thrilled the guardians signed jose ramirez <laughs> my favorite player on the team for the last five years i grew up in new york i grew up a yankees fan Everyone hated the Yankees here. Ooh. Everyone, yeah, exactly. Fine, uh, but my, my Italian grandfather was a DiMaggio fan, and I learned about baseball from him and whatever. I've become a Cleveland baseball fan over the last several years, and to me, it's not a big deal. But I realize I'm not um, that invested. In fact, there was an episode of this show where Steve and I were talking. And I said, I'm not a native Clevelander. I'm not a native Ohioan. And Steve jumped in and said, you're not a native American. And I went, okay, I wasn't trying to throw you that softball, but I did. What's that? You can't even say native. You can't even say native. I think that might be construed as cultural appropriation. Well, if you... I I don't even think you... Why don't don't we rename Cuyahoga County while we're at it? Or Mahoning County? Why are we allowed to name these counties after... Uh, Native American tribes. Well, I mean, I mean, to be honest, though, there's a there's a there's a difference. There's a difference between um, naming something after a specific tribe, after a specific group, um, as opposed to just taking like a general name that wasn't even something like they, you know what I mean? Like just like taking this broad mm-hmm. term, like instead of like so, you know, you brought up the Florida State Seminoles. Well, 
Yeah, but it's the Florida State Seminoles, which is, you know, the Seminole tribe, and they pay homage to them, right? Like, I mean, so they, you know, the, the guy, yeah, he does dress Wait, up. By putting a guy on a horse, painting him up, and letting him run around? And right, I mean, but yeah, I mean, but you're sort of demeaning their, I mean, but that's where you're coming in and demeaning their culture, right? That's literally what they were known for. They were Seminole warriors. That was how they dressed, and that's, you know, I mean, throwing a spear, while it's not something that we do normally, is not easy to do. But, but uh, so what about the Chiefs? What, what about the Chiefs and the fans but, doing? But the again, the Chiefs. Okay, so the Chiefs to me fall in line with the Indians, and I'll say the same thing with, uh, you know, about the Indians and the Chiefs. If, if so, if if I own the Chiefs, would I would I change the name? I may not want to, but I probably would have, right? And I think, like, it was important for the Indians to do. I didn't necessarily want it, but when you listen to it from the perspective of some Native Americans, because a lot of Native Americans didn't care. Um, some felt that they didn't they didn't want the name to change, um, whether they thought it was something that honored them or not. Either way, they didn't want it to change. And then you had those who actually wanted it to change, and they felt passionate enough about it um, to put it in the forefront. And they got a, a lot of support from a lot of different groups um, that maybe probably didn't have the same skin in the game, but are you know social justice warriors. Fine, whatever. Sure. Um, I, I'm I I I think that there's a difference between you know, specific, you know, honoring specific tribes um, and having actual because it's not just dressing up some guy. That guy, the guy who does that for Florida State, is an actual Seminole is is of that tribe. Um, and I just think there's 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 a difference between paying homage and you know just drawing a caricature, uh, you know, a caricature with with these but, exaggerated but so features wait, with so a, with, it, with so red skin. Would it made a difference if we had some like Iroquois or? or... Yes, I think it absolutely would have made a difference. So, so, so why didn't ownership just try to – was that an option to try to I, just – I don't talk to the Dolans. I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I because I, like, I mean, that's how I would have – like, see, again, that would have been the logical thing, right? That would have been the sensible thing. Well, I don't he, think he, that – Here's here's my sense of it, Steve. Seriously, because the reason why the Chiefs aren't under pressure to change their name is because they won the Super Bowl and they win. And I also think it's a different symbol. Like the what the the biggest issue for the Indians was Chief Wahoo, right? Well, like that, that was that was they got rid of it. I understand so, like, it, but at that point it was at, like, but it, Chief Wahoo and the Indian like they were so they were so tied together that I think that if you were to, in order to really fully get rid of Chief Wahoo, you had to get rid of the Indians. And you had to Listen, bring it to in. to get rid of Chief Wahoo, I, I, I was able to digest that and accept it, even though I would, I mean, I still have Chief Wahoo gears, you can imagine. Again, it was it, it was an iconic logo for me growing up. It's literally part of my identity as a Clevelander. I understand the sensitivity to it, and I, I don't, I don't want to uh, diminish that, because I, I do get that. Because, it, I mean, it is literally a cartoon caricature, but, you know, there's also cartoon caricatures that of white people that I don't really get offended by. I mean, fighting Irish in Notre Dame, I'm not Irish, but even if I were, I don't think I'd necessarily feel like that. I mean, it's a drunk fucking <laughs> leprechaun smoking a pipe ready to fight somebody because, you know, I mean, come on, man. I mean, it's a, I think the argument there would be that, that leprechauns aren't but, real. But, but here's the other point <laughs> is that, listen, I think, and again, this, this is, I, I might, there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with me on this statement. But I go back to 2016, and if the Indians had won that Game 7, had won that World Series, I think this issue would largely have been moot. I, I, don't, I think the Indians would have had enough leverage at that point that they would have been able to avoid this issue altogether, just the same way that the Blackhawks have. Listen, I, I've done business with the Wirtz family, and I don't want to – you know, I, 
a lot of people listen to podcasts. I, I don't I don't want to talk about any private conversations. But listen, these guys have dealt with that pressure, um, and they've navigated it in a way that I think protects their fans' interests. And I think the Indians could have used that as a template to to address. And again, with total um, sensitivity to the individuals that feel wronged, still be able to address those concerns. Because again, to your point, Steve, if it's about not celebrating. I mean, again, look around this whole part of the country. Everything's named after Native Americans. There's plenty of ways we could celebrate Native American culture in a way that's, you know, not perceived as cultural, you know, appropriation or, or some way negative. We, we should have explored all those avenues because the Cleveland Indians uh, as a franchise, as a, and even as intellectual property, that's the business side, but, but as a, you know, as, as a pillar of a community here, it, it was really, really a meaningful part for a lot of people. And I mean, you guys know this, even from the, the, the management down, there's a lot of people that are still unhappy with this decision. Um, I, and again, I, I hope it all works out, but it's just, it's really an unfortunate outcome for a lot of us that uh, that grew up here and, you know. You know, and I, so Ben, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like, I mean, I grew up an Indians fan. I, you know, Major League one and two are two of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, 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 I'm a I, like I, I completely empathize with your position, um, and I still slip up and call them the Indians. Uh, you know, and some of my fondest memories are are of the Cleveland Indians. And I'm not gonna like when I reference it historically, I'm going to say the Indians because they weren't the Guardians at that point in time. Um, right. But at the same time, I, I, I I'm my fandom for the Cleveland baseball team won't shift because of the name change. Right, like I'm not gonna stop. Oh, 100%. You know what it's I mean? Like, that, and so I just I want to make sure that that's clear, and I want to give you an opportunity to say, I mean, because if you wanted to say, if you said I don't want to, I'm not gonna support this team anymore because they did that, that's that's fine. That's completely your right. But I I didn't get the sense that that was what you were saying. Well, I'm just off put by it to the extent that I mean, look, there's other ways I can spend my time and money. Um, and so I, I'm not ready to say that I'm just willing to support an organization arbitrarily, no matter what they do. <clears throat> what I would say is that I would have preferred they, you just nailed it. I, and I actually tweeted this. I actually would prefer that they had just called it the Cleveland baseball team, just like <laughs> Washington did in the interim. That would have been great. That way a lot of us could just still call them the Indians casually. We don't have to have it on the, you know, the scoreboard or on television or t-shirts and everything else. Cleveland baseball team would have been great. Just go to something neutral the, the Guardians thing just bothers me. It's a traffic statue. Well, I, I guess I for know. me, like, for me, actually, I, I really, so I I love architecture, so I love that the, I love those statues on the bridge, and for me, I think where I'm most off-put by it was that they didn't use the fucking statues as the logo, right? They got this yeah. flying testicle, which is <laughs> awful, and, I mean, it literally looks like my daughter drew it, and, and I hate it, and that's my biggest beef with this. It's like you put all that time and energy in telling us you were going to change the name, you come up with the Guardians, you make this connection to the bridge, and then you don't use the fucking bridge in any way, shape, or form. They could have used the bridge with, with you know, with the Guardians right there as, as, as a logo or just taken the head or, you know, one of the, one of the traffic Guardians and used them as a logo, but they didn't. And that's the part that's the most offensive. Like, you put me through all this, and then you give me a dog shit logo? Like, come <laughs> the fuck on. All right, I'm taking over the closeout of the show because we've gone way long, and I have a funny uh, conclusion to this because I was in a bar in Baltimore this week, 
and on business, and this guy was like, what the fuck is it, the Guardians? And I said, well, actually, there's a statue, and I, he goes, oh, there's actually a story behind that. And had the Washington football team taken a year and a half to choose a name that didn't suck as bad as the Commanders, I would give them some credit. But Commanders? Come on, let's go comms. I don't give what a fuck f- about the Commanders or Washington. I don't give a fuck Washington. either, but... but, <laughs> like, but I mean, I mean like, okay, way, congrats. You, you had a year to figure this shit out, and you came up with Commanders. Okay, but... Come on. Okay, uh, you're right. literally so, having... Like, so, you're, so, like, okay, fine, we're, I guess we're better off the, than the Commanders, but we? I don't know if we are, and this is literally the tallest midget conversation. It is absolutely <laughs> the tallest midget Midget conversation. We're an hour and twenty minutes, so we need to. Well, wait. You, I don't know if you guys want to touch on the Browns thing real quick. You know, I was gonna say. Do you want to do? Do we want to do a bonus episode? We cannot. Um, we cannot. No. no. Um, so I do want to touch on the Browns really quick. I mean, you're obviously a Cleveland fan, so I mean, are you? I mean, so they bring in Deshaun Watson. Um, Baker Mayfield is kind of left uh, hanging in the wind. Um, are you? What are your thoughts with Deshaun Watson? And given the things that are sort of out there about him. Um, and then do you, do you care necessarily about the Baker Mayfield situation? Are you happy that you have Deshaun Watson and they'll figure out Mayfield? Uh, in just as briefly as I can, cause like you said, you know, you to, you take as long as you want. Yeah. No, so, so first of all, I mean, I wasn't the biggest Mayfield fan, frankly. So, I mean, I, he did very well for a few years. I, I, I don't know if I blame it on him or the coaches for having run him out there. Uh, the way they did, uh, you know, injured um, for most of this year probably cost us a, an opportunity to get into the postseason. Um, Watson, obviously, incredibly talented. It, obviously, there's where there's smoke, there's usually fire, right? I mean, 22 women, can they all be wrong? Probably not. But, but I got to say this. I mean, the way that I view it, and as a, you know, I probably wouldn't have felt this way um, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But I think what I've kind of learned is, is I've grown and, and I've kind of emotionally detached myself more from professional sports. And it's just maybe a unique way to frame this, but I view it all as entertainment, no different than like a movie or television show or pro wrestling or whatever. So, I, you know, I, I want to see the Browns win to the extent that this young man has some civil uh, litigation that's still ongoing. You know, let's see how that goes. My understanding is from a criminal standpoint, he was, he was, uh, he, he I, won't be charged. He was not indicted. What? Sorry. What was that? He was not indicted. So he will not be charged with anything. Okay. So, so, so yeah. So to that extent, um, you know, the criminal aspect of this is, has largely been mitigated. So as far as I'm concerned, I look at it as entertainment these aren't people that I look up to. I don't have to do business with them. I don't have to have like my younger cousins and family members have to look up to these people and idolize them. Their job is to entertain me and win football games. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I wish him and the Browns well. I hope they play well. Um, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are saying like, listen, I can't support this. This guy's a, you know, a sexual predator, a rapist or whatever they're calling him. Um, that, that's fine. It's it's the same as people that, as you pointed out, Steve, for me, if I don't want to support the, the Cleveland baseball team because I don't like the new name, that's my right, too. So I think it's everybody's right to do whatever they want. At the end of the day, it's all entertainment. Same thing. I can go back and say the same thing about my take on the Guardians. It is entertainment. I shouldn't really care about it much. Um, and, and so that's that's really kind of where you have to detach yourself from some of this stuff and just, you know, let, I, but I will just one last point on this. 
management did such a poor job with the way they addressed it in the I didn't see the presser in real time. My sister actually asked me to watch it because she's very passionate about this issue. She's very anti she's really conflicted, very upset with this uh, situation. But I would just say management could have gotten out front of this and said, look, we vet them out. We know we're we have total confidence that this issue is going to be uh, resolved in a way that's favorable for the organization and for this young man. But they didn't quite do that. They equivocated. And I think that's what's leaving a lot of fans uncomfortable. And they and I can understand why they would feel uncomfortable about it. But, uh, you know, just to put a bow on it, my, my sense is I, I have to separate it as, as just it's literally just entertainment. It's it's really not going to improve my life in a in a tangible way other than i'd be happy if the browns won uh, but if they win or lose i've dealt with what over a decade of losing now and i'm still doing okay so um well i'll tell you ben that's a very mature way to look at it and i can appreciate it but i screw that i'm super passionate about my sports i do i mean I, I like so i'm a Steeler fan and and i can tell you Having gone through this with Ben Roethlisberger, I wanted the Rooneys to trade him. I wanted them to cut him. I hated, you know, the stories that were coming out about him, and I, I was in that camp, and Dan Rooney was also in that camp and tried everything to get rid of Ben Roethlisberger and the organization, everyone else, including his son, talked him into keeping him, and I think it turned out okay. Um, so, you know, for me, seeing Deshaun Watson go to the Browns after all the shit the Browns have been giving me for the last 20 years – that Ben has been the quarterback for the Steelers. Now I'm going to. It, it takes away your pedestal. I, I now I'm going to exact my revenge, right? I mean, I've oh, already. Oh, I'm I, sorry. I thought you were taking the high road. No, I'm not taking what the, the high road. What the fuck was I thinking? I am not I taking the high road. I bet on Lindsey Graham and I don't <laughs> right. bet on you. Two I, terrible decisions. No, I am not taking the high road. I have already offered to you know do Deshaun's personal tour when he gets here. Okay. And, and I have a number. I have a number of places that I would like to take him and show him. <laughs> and I promise you, he won't be your quarterback. Okay, so <laughs> all right. Here, ben, 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 here is why you are a blessing and a curse. We could probably talk for four more hours and have a great time doing it, but we've gone really long. We really appreciate appreciate you coming on. Uh, great talking to you. If you want a, a closing uh, remark or statement, it's there. But we really appreciate you, brother, and um, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, so, no. Listen, I always love coming on with you guys, and hope we can do it again uh, here pretty soon. But but thanks to both of you guys, Steve, Jim. Always fun, great conversation, uh, wide ranging conversation. But of course, yeah. No, I, I appreciate it, and can't wait to uh, to connect uh, down the road. We will do so. Have a great day. It's a beautiful day in Cleveland, which you don't always get to say in April. So. I want to go out and do some day drinking, and um, thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming careful. on. Thanks for coming on, Ben. We really appreciate you. Uh, right, go ahead, do, do your do your 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 Twitter Twitter handle oh, one more yeah, time. If, We're up. If you want to follow me on Twitter, sure. It's King of Convexity is my Twitter handle, and uh, again, I tweet a lot of finance and charts, so it's not exactly the most. Yeah, I make a few jokes. Sometimes it's funny, but uh, no. Thanks again, guys. It's always fun coming on. You're not going to make it on TikTok with charts. But uh, there's a finance TikTok. <laughs> there probably is a finance TikTok. Thanks again, Ben. We are at Whiskey Congress on Instagram and Twitter, and we are done. Thanks for listening. We had a great time talking to you, brother. <laughs>